Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Say, we'd like to get started. I talk to you and you talk to me. Who are you talking to at this hour? Mr. Hadley. You better start talking. Let's start the talking. I could talk all night. My mind is J-talking. Bradley J. J talking WBZ. You're Jay talking live midnight to five. It's one oh seven. We're with Bob Allison from Suffolk University talking about literary Boston, and we are we have arrived at Henry David Thoreau, and I think he's interesting enough to spend some time on. Sure. People think of him as a an outdoorsman, yeah, but he really wasn't. He was a really upper crust guy who said, "I'm going to go slum it in the woods." Yeah, for a while, for a while. Crust, you know, he, he was a, made pencils, and his, his father. The, the, there used to be a term, and it may be politically incorrect, of swamp Yankee, and it was you know a lot of these families who had come over in the 1600s. They are the Yankees, and then they're big families, and not everyone becomes successful in a monetary way. And the ones who do, actually, in the early 19th century, it's the first time there's really fabulous wealth being generated here, first by the China trade and then by the mills. And so in a family, you'll have some cousins who are quite well off, and then there are others who aren't. And it's really no knock necessarily against them, because the Puritan idea is that the soul is what's important and so on. But they're swamp Yankees. Yeah. And also, there used to be a, t- a tradition here or a certain ethic here where you didn't show off. You weren't ostentatious in your wealth. So you're, and, and someone like Thoreau, who clearly has great mental gifts, is someone, well, to be respected somewhat, but you know, uh, the housewives in um, Concord always were wary because they would put a pie out to cool on their uh, windowsill, and Henry David Thoreau would come and scoff. He would abscond with it. Are they sure it was him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was so quite he was not about, crust. He, he was thought, a swamp he, Yankee. He, yeah, he thought he was liberating the pies. He had a better use. There's a pa- passage in uh, Walden where he talks about, you know, one of his great lines is that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. He talks about this, you know, we want to be free. And he says, he talks about going to um, visit friends and the family's gone to bed and he's just thinking about what blighted lives they lead. Unlike him, who is free, of course, I'm just thinking about this couple who have gone to bed and this guy's still sitting up out there. Blighted and, lives. And blighted like lives, you know, and here he is, see, he's thinking he's better than they are. And uh, you know, who does he think? He, 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 every Sunday he goes into, goes back to his mother's to have a dinner on Sunday while he's living out in the woods being free. So that's, that's it. He's not all that free. 
He's not all that free. Is anyone really free? And that's, I think, one of the great questions he is asking. I mean, he certainly wants us. Wants so to was he kind of a free. phony with that cabin? I mean, he went to his mother's for dinner yeah, on Yeah, and of course, the cab, the land belonged to Ralph Waldo Emerson. So Emerson lets him It was him a live. freebie. It was a freebie, yeah. Yeah, so he talks about how much he spends on it and all. Well, this it's is kind great. of like glamping. It is, yeah. Glamour, yeah. Glam camping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really... I don't mean to knock down. Okay, so what we're, what it seems like we're doing is just knocking down a lot of people who are better than we are, or at least better than I am. And maybe it's jealousy on my part. But, you know, Thoreau, he, he's also, he had published his first book. Uh, he and his brother had taken a canoe trip um, along the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. And then the book was published. They published about a thousand copies. And then after a year, 50 copies had sold. And so the publishers, while he's living in his little cabin, they send him back the 950 unsold copies of A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. So, and he, he says that very few men can boast of a library of more than 900 <laughs> volumes, and fewer still can say they wrote every one. And True. Does, There's no room in the cabin for those. No, there isn't. He has a great sense of humor about this, about his condition as well as the condition of the rest of us leading our lives of quiet desperation. I swear I could live. I've gone to the cabin, and I swear I could really live in a cabin that size. It's really? not quite... What do you call those little tiny? It's not a yeah. tiny, tiny house, but no. it's pretty tiny. It is pretty tiny, yeah, yeah, and it has uh, all he needed, and and so he uh, would have been content there at least for that year, and he doesn't stay there. And then again, Four Pinckney Street, big difference between Four Pinckney Street and the little cabin yeah, out so in the woods. Was he of the level that he could always afford Pinckney Street, or was that only after so. he sold some? I books? don't think so. I don't think so. I think that might have been rented. And again, Pinckney Street really is the border between the upper crust south slope of the hill that faces toward the common, and then the north slope, which had been was Boston's black community at this period. You know, the African meeting house is there on Joy Street. Joy Street and Smith goes Court. down the backside yeah. towards Cambridge Street. Yeah. And uh, Anderson Street was named in honor of Robert Anderson, the commander at Fort Sumter, by the black community who was there. And you know, the first school for educating black children in the country was built, the Abiel Smith schools on the other side of Beacon Hill. So Pinckney Street formed kind of the barrier between Shows the you two. how small things were then if it could be divided in such a small mm -hmm. area. This, the, yeah, yeah. This side, rich people, this side, yeah. Not so much. Yeah, that, that's Almost true. A very small hill. That's true. So I would wonder, was he renting a room there? Because a lot of these were boarding houses on the other side of Beacon yeah. Hill, too. So it could have been there. It's not like this is the family home. Today, it's quite, you know, uh, Thoreau couldn't afford to live there today. Do you think sure. that they kept those apartments the same out of respect? Like if you went no. to visit it, they're all different now, you figure? I doubt. I, I, I right. would think so. Who else now? Herman Melville? Was Herman that... Melville does have a Boston connection. Again, mainly we think of him either as Western Mass or uh, New Bedford because that's where he signed on to. And then, of course, his great novel, Moby Dick, uh, takes us to the South Pacific. His other novels go to the South Pacific. But, you know, in the Supreme Judicial Court, they have a chair that belonged to his father-in-law. His father-in-law was the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, Lemuel Shaw. And Melville is a very is a serious writer as well as a poet. He writes wonderful poetry during the Civil War about uh, as it's happening. So we have... Um, Melville on Shiloh about the wheeling slowly, wheeling still, the swallows skim over the fields of Shiloh. It's uh, one, uh, it, he had a real way of using the language. And this is what I was suggesting when we're talking about serious writers as opposed to others. 
the real way of working with the language to make it, you know, in poetry, you're really trying to get the most you can out of the fewest possible words. At least that's what we were trying to do before Walt Whitman came along. And you, so you have this real economy in the language, which is, seems to be the opposite of Moby Dick. And Moby Dick, everything is in Moby Dick. And it doesn't sell very well, consequently. Um, it's not until the 20th century that it really is discovered as this classic. So Melville does have, you know, I think the thing to remember here is it's not just that there are writers here, but Boston is the center for the American literary culture. You have um, the Atlantic Monthly, which is published by Tickner and Fields. And Tickner and Fields was probably the biggest publishing house in the country. And um, George Tickner and James Fields are the proprietors. And then James Fields marries an extraordinary woman named Annie Adams Fields. And she is really good at picking out talented writers and getting her husband to publish them. He's also very good at seeing talented writers and then publishing them either in the Atlantic, which he become of which he becomes the editor, after James Russell Lowell briefly had been the editor, and then James Fields takes it over. They lived, I think, on uh, Chestnut Street or Charles Street, um, and but Tickner and Fields, their office was at what then becomes the old corner bookstore. It's now a Chipotle. No, on I the know that saddens and, me. Yeah. But it had been a publishing house. That's where Dickens came, and and that's why the um, Parker House becomes a center for writers because it was just up the street. That's right. And so on Saturday nights, they would meet there. The Saturday Club would convene at the Parker House, and it's right up the street from the publishing house. And then the Fields also would have literary salons at their house. And then after James Fields dies... um, This is the Atlantic Monthly? He's the guy who publisher of the Atlantic Monthly Mm -hmm. and the last proprietor of Tickner and Fields. Uh, Tickner had died. Fields takes over the publishing firm. Gets into a literary fight, actually, with one of his writers because they change the way they're paying writers, and she says she's cheating her, and she publishes a book attacking Fields for his cheating writers, and it does really damage his reputation, and he, he winds up, Die. Well, all of us wind up dying. It's one of the things you learn if you read a lot of literature. But um, Annie Fields then lives for the last oh, 20, 30 years of her life with Sarah Orne Jewett, another writer whom um, she had published. And uh, Sarah Orne Were Orn they Jew- just roommates? Well, Henry James, I think it is, coins the term of Boston marriage. It's a relationship between two women. One of the real good things about the Victorian period is we really didn't inquire into what people were doing, the privacy of their own homes. People would be using opium. They might be using right? opium. And they yeah. Just, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. If you're yeah. rich and you're in your salon, anything goes. You're not hurting anyone. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Boston marriage, and so Sarah Orne Jewett really does encourage Annie Fields to write. And she does write a biography. She writes a biography of her husband, also writes a biography of Harriet Beecher Stowe another writer whom we haven't mentioned who also does have a Boston connection. Her father had been a minister here back in the 1820s, 1830s. And so she writes a biography of her, is involved in the anti-slavery movement, then in the women's suffrage movement. So Annie Fields, as a literary powerhouse, we wouldn't necessarily think of her as a writer, but she does write about writers and also as a way of recognizing talented writers, which is something that happens here in Boston because we do control, we do have our center of publishing in the 
19th century. You mentioned Parker House briefly. Yes. There are more literary oh, yeah. uh, connections with the Parker House. Sure. There's, uh, Susan Wilson, the historian of the Parker House, has written a really good book called uh, Heaven by Hotel Standards. And that's a line from Mark Twain, who stayed at the Parker House on one of his visits to Boston. Charles Dickens stayed at the Parker House, and there was a mirror there that Dickens had in his room, and he would pr uh, practice before it because he would do readings of A Christmas Carol or Oliver Twist, and he would really be acting them out. So he would be doing this in front of a mirror so he could see how it looked for a great dramatic effect. And they have the door in, in, of the room where Dickens stayed. And it was also the room where Ch Charlotte Cushman stayed. She was an actress born in Boston and is the first woman for whom a public building in Boston was named. She was such an important actress in the 19th century. And where she was born just about a dozen years after theater had been legalized in Boston. And then she makes her career on the stage, mainly in Europe, where the stage was a lot more lucrative than it was here. We haven't spent much time on Mark Twain and Poe. We spent some on Twain. But Poe, of course, very yeah. interesting. Yeah. There's a sculpture out in front of the, well, it's the corner of what, yeah. Tremont and Charles, Charles yes. in front of the cigar store that's yeah. quite a creepy excellent uh, yeah sculpture. it is it is it was uh it's very new it's within the last five years and the woman who did it it's the first time she's done a sculpture uh, uh, and did a wonderful job with this i happened to see some of the other ideas for what could be there because there was actually a committee a uh, professor from um bu was really interested in having a monument to poe and Poe has a long and contentious relationship with Boston. You know, born here in 1809, his mother was an actress. And this is, she arrived shortly after theater had been legalized in Boston. Eliza. Theater was illegal. Oh, yeah. Because it was thought to be enjoyable. Yeah, well, no, yeah, that's probably it. But the Puritans thought there's something deeply suspicious about, A, pretending to be someone you're not, and then, B, paying to see someone pretending to be someone they're not. <laughs> And it, it leads to all kinds of illicit things, bad ideas and so on. So theater had been illegal, and then uh, theatrical people were kind of seen as somewhat suspect. Right, but and they are. They are, yeah. And Eliza Poe, Eliza Al, uh, Arnold, had arrived here from England with her mother. She was about eight years old, and she's on the stage and is really a great, act, wonderful actress. People love her, and she does this. Um, she travels on uh, the circuit, but she loved Boston. And she marries twice. Her first husband dies, and then she marries this stage-struck guy from Baltimore named Poe, and his acting career fizzles, and they have two children. He abandons the family, and then you know, she uh, dies of tuberculosis in Boston in about 1811, leaving behind two sons, and one of them is Edgar. And she leaves to Edgar a watercolor she had done of Boston, and it says on the back, to my son Edgar, I hope you will always cherish the town of Boston where you were born. And unfortunately, Edgar Allan Poe doesn't cherish the town of Boston. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Midwest, and he hates it. Well, although he keeps coming back. Why does he hate us so much? Well, I think he has a lot of, I, I, I suppose maybe next time we can do kind of dime novel psychoanalysis of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, I think it is because, partly maybe because of his mother and associating it okay. with her. But also he, he does come back to Boston probably when he's in his 20s. He'd already flunked out of West Point and he joins the army here at Castle Island. And he is at Castle Island. Here's the story of an officer who was so hated that a man got him drunk, tricked him, got him, and walled him up inside a room. And of course, Poe writes a short story, Cask of Amontillado, which has very much the same plot. And he publishes his first poem, um, a long poem, and it's with the um, the author is given as a Bostonian. And then he goes to New York, and he becomes the editor of the Broadway Journal. And he is a very a great poet. As again, he really works with the language, but also he is probably one of the most important literary critics of the time. And at this particular moment, there are folks like the Boston writers who are trying to create an American literature. You know, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson in the 1830s writes the American scholar, and saying we have worshipped too long the courtly muse of Europe and really trying to trumpet American writers. But Poe thinks your real criterion for praising a writer should be the quality of the work. And he is really quite devastating in his critiques of some of these writers. If he doesn't like it, if he doesn't think it's aesthetically sound, we'll point it out. He'll point out things that are aesthetically sound. So he does have some pleasant things to say about some of these writers, but he doesn't think you should just trumpet someone because they're Americans. By the way, in the 1940s, a Harvard professor writes a big book called American Renaissance about the American writers of this time who are creating this American literature, and he has a long footnote explaining why he leaves Edgar Allan Poe out of the book. You know, maybe the most important writer of the 19th century, but he's not in a book about American writing of the 19th century because Poe isn't optimistic about things, and Poe doesn't share in their real faith in democracy. Of course, Poe would agree. He's not optimistic, doesn't have faith in democracy. Um, but is that enough to keep him out of a book about American writers? So anyway, Poe really attacks um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And Longfellow is the great poet of the era. And Poe thinks that Longfellow, A, isn't a very good poet, and B, he's a plagiarist. Uh, you know, Longfellow does translate a lot from German and from Italian, and so Poe thinks he's lifting a lot of the good stuff from these two languages and passing these things off as his own. And he also, you know, remember the common is really, you know, Poe grew up just south of the common or was born there, and one of the most distinctive features of the common, getting back to the common where we began with Mencken, was the frog pond. And Poe calls Boston frogpondia. And the frog pond, because, you know, the frog pond, you know frogs yeah. are there because they're loud, just like the Boston writers are loud. But at the end of the day, they're really just frogs. So it was in frog pond, not cement. It was actually a frog it pond. It was a frog pond. It was just yeah. a pond. It was a pond, real, a real pond. With yeah. like yeah. cat o' nine tails. And right. Yeah. So it was a real frogs. pond. Yeah. And there would have been real frogs and you could hear them. Uh, their common, Poe Road, is no uncommon thing. Their pumpkin pies are delicious. Their poetry is quite bad. And he he was kind of embarrassed about being born in Boston. But as I said, he keeps coming back. He does give a reading of a poem in Boston. 
and it's um, among Post scholars, it's somewhat controversial. What was he trying to do in this reading? He says he had picked a really a bad poem that went on forever to read as a way of wearing out his audience. It's unclear if that's what he was doing, but uh, he really, it's kind of unfortunate for us that Baltimore has claimed Poe. He goes to Baltimore and dies. He doesn't have a real connection with it other than that unfortunate fact. Uh, but Boston, he has this lifelong engagement with and this wonderful sculpture. He has the satchel and out of the satchel are coming a raven and a telltale heart. And behind him, there's a black cat and he's leaving behind these um, paper pages of things he has written, you know, his poetry and his short stories. He really creates the detective novel. And so he has a long, well, it's short because his life was short, but really intense relationship with Boston. So if you had to do 30 days in jail and choose a Boston author, one, who would you choose to read in jail? That's a very good question. I am reminded of James Michael Curley, who spent 30 days in jail, and I don't think he read, he read a lot of Shakespeare. Um, and 30 days in the hole. 30 days in the hole. Well, let Why me not Poe? Poe seems to me to be Poe probably would be the most rewarding and certainly the one who's been probably the most translated and the most read by others, and the one who's still read, he's still remains in kind of a popular imagination in the way that Hawthorne doesn't and Longfellow doesn't. They, those and, seem kind of yeah, puritanical. Exactly, exactly. And Poe is really rebelling against this in the same way that Mencken was. And um, yeah, So I, I fear we've come on, people thinking, boy, we're going to hear about the nice New England authors, and we just keep talking about these guys who hated the New England authors. Right. So Poe, you would choose Edgar Allan Poe. I think I may. And then again, um, mention briefly Mark Twain. And Twain is just coming to be discovered in the 1870s. What do you got there for landmarks, Bob? Well, some of them we've mentioned, these places on Beacon Hill. In fact, uh, Susan Wilson, whom I think we've mentioned, has a, has a really nice book she wrote on Boston's literary landmarks. And you can do a walking tour. Well, not a walking tour because you're not going to need to get onto in a car and drive out to Concord. You know, but the Parker House is uh, the Omni Parker House, great place. And as I said, they have the mirror where Dickens performed, and the door of the room where he stayed. And then up the street is the Boston Athenaeum, private subscription library, and they do have wonderful paintings of a lot of these characters. Annie Adams Field, there's a portrait of, and it really is, um, yeah, you know, a, a wonderful. It's a private library, but the public can go in yeah. on, at least on the first floor. Can you talk a little bit more about the Athenaeum? Yeah. So, is it a a club? It's uh, like not a really, country club not for really, literature, not or really a club? Started in about eighteen oh six or eighteen oh nine. I'm blanking. I, I think it was eighteen oh six when the Athenaeum was created by a group of Boston gentlemen, and it is. Um, shareholders own it. They built the current building in 1849 to house both their books and their art collection. So they built this building from scratch oh, yeah. for and, this. Yeah. And in the 1870s, the art collection spun off to become the Museum of Fine Arts. Oh. It still has the books, the uh, novels, history. It's a tremendous research library and people can join it. That is for about $300 a year, you can become a cardholder at the Athenaeum. It used to be said that the three things every proper Bostonian wanted were a reader's card at the Athenaeum, 
a pew at Trinity Church, and a plot at Mount Auburn Cemetery. Yeah, that's right. how you knew you were a real Bostonian if you had those three things. Okay, yeah. so it's a terrific place. And another, do they have course, dinners and things? Well, they do have tea on Wednesday afternoons. Okay. There is tea, uh, so that's something you definitely could go okay. to and you know rub shoulder, rub elbows with. Um, Who would well, you rub? Elbows with. I, I've never actually been to tea there, so I couldn't tell you, but I'm sure you'll find some very fine people okay. there. Uh, you know, and it overlooks the Granary Burying Ground, and they do have, as I said, a terrific art collection. So there's a model of Thomas Bull's sculpture of George Washington, and this, the sculpture itself stands in the um, State House in Virginia. Is that the one on the common? I mean, on the. No, they do have that. They do a plaster model of the Washington on a horse by Thomas okay. Bull. No, it's Houdon's is the one. Yeah, they have the model of Houdon's. They also have Houdon's bust of Washington and Houdon's bust of Lafayette and Houdon's bust of um, Benjamin Franklin. And they have a huge portrait of Thomas Handeseed Perkins, who was the um, guy, well, Bill Fowler calls him Boston's biggest drug dealer. He was involved in the trade with China in the early oh. 19th century and also endowed the Perkins School for the Blind. And they have other notable folks like that. You enter and there's a portrait of Daniel Webster and a portrait of John Marshall, the two leading lights for the 19th century Federalists who really were behind the formation of the Athenaeum. So there's that. And then um, another literary landmark, another library is of course the Boston Public Library. And that is well worth visiting, taking a tour of because it's more than books. It really is. If you enter into the McKim building off of Copley Square, the, on the ceiling in the mosaics are eminent Bostonians in different fields. So in philosophy and in science and in literature and in law, you know, so you'll see names like uh, Franklin and Adams and Emerson and um, Longfellow and other eminent folks who were enshrined there. And, you know, throughout, there was really made to be a palace for the people. And they had some of the finest artists and sculptors in the world working on it. So the Abbey Room has the, um, the murals by Edwin Austin Abbey are about the um, uh, pursuit of the Holy Grail. So it's much like a museum. It is like a museum, yes. Yeah, and of course the, the Bates Hall, you know, Joshua Bates grew up very poor in Boston. He goes to London, becomes a banker. He's at Baring Brothers in the 1840s when, or 1880s when Boston is trying to build a sewer system they apply for a loan. They want a bond issue. And so they send all of the paperwork about everything happening in Boston to Baring Brothers. And Joshua Bates reads through all this stuff. And he says, well, here's a proposal to build a public library. This was in the 1840s when they built the first public library. And he says, well, that would have been a really useful thing when I was growing up very poor in Boston. So he writes a check for $50,000. Today, that would be probably several million dollars. And he says, on the stipulation that when they build the library, there be a reading room large enough for 100 people to use at any time. It has to be free to everybody. And it is. It is, yeah. And so Bates Hall is still free. To, and the library says in the front, over the front door, free to all. Um, so well worth seeing. Uh, that's one of the great literary landmarks. And, of course, across the street in Copley Square itself, there's a little marker for Khalil Gibran, who lived in the South End. He was uh, from Lebanon. And a lot of, they then were called, then was called Syria. That is, he came here from part of the Ottoman Empire that then was Syria. Today, of course, we know it as Lebanon. 
And, um, you know, so he spends a good part of his childhood and young manhood here before he does go back to Lebanon. And he writes The Prophet and um, other book, notable books of the early 20th century. And, you know, so you have the marker for Khalil Gibran. And, of course, on the Commonwealth Avenue Mall, there is a little shrine to three writers, Abigail Adams, Lucy Stone, and Phyllis Wheatley, and then other writers as well. So you have those literary landmarks here. Also, should mention on Beacon Street, on the first block of Beacon Street off after the Public Garden is the uh, home of Charles Henry Gibson. And he thought he would be remembered as a literary figure, that one day his poetry would be discovered, and so he wanted his house preserved to be a shrine to him. Um, unfortunately, his poetry, such as has been discovered, hasn't uh, created a stream of pilgrims to come to the Gibson house. The nice house, but it's no a, one, it's a no really one nice house. Up. If you really want to see what a um, back bay mansion would have looked like, this is the best preserved one, and it's open to the public. Preserved so from probably what year? Well, from the 1950s is when it became a museum, but the Gibsons lived in it from the 1850s to his death in uh, the early 50s. So for 100 years, this was the home of one family. And so you do have their furnishings. Wow. So well worth seeing. And, and then, you know, if you venture out to Concord, you can see the or- Orchard House, which was, as we said, the home of Louis Alcott's, and then also the Emerson House in Concord, and a rep- replica of Thoreau's Cabin um, out at Walden Pond. And, you know, also the Old Manse, that, uh, the North Bridge, and that was the home of Ralph Waldo Emerson's the North Bridge in, in, Con- in okay. Concord. And that was also the home of Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, the old manse, which is why Herman Melville wrote one of his, um, his uh, review of Hawthorne's book about mosses from an old manse. So you have those literary landmarks. That's a, that's right a good day or a, good or a day. week. A good week. There's plenty, yeah. yeah. And you plenty to read in between. Right, a full day at the library. Oh, yeah, you could. It's a good time to break, and we'll get into uh, Lehane and and Friends of Eddie Coyle and the whole Boston Noir thing, and uh, The Last Hurrah. The Last Hurrah. With the curly. Yes. After this on WBZ. We got to talk. What do we got to talk about? Mr. Bradley. Jay talking. With Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's a radio wave, sir. I've had some long nights in stir. Alone in the dark with nothing but your thoughts. Time can draw out like a blade. Like talking on the it's a very bright man. It's very educational. That's why I'm here. Bradley J. J. Talking. WBZ. Robert Allison for a final segment talking about literary Boston. We just talked about some literary landmarks that you can go visit. But now let's get modern. Uh, 
the Boston literature is not not only from the olden days, but still uh, there yeah, are people are still writing. People are still writing here in yeah, Boston. Yeah. And you mentioned Lahane. Yeah, Dennis Lahane. Yeah, talk about that. We're from Dorchester. Written some really good novels. Well, he does write a lot of um, thrillers. Um, and kind of with that whole Boston noir idea that the seedy side of Boston, so um, Gone Baby Gone and um, Spectacle Island. So Spectacle Island, um, and, and again, there are twists to them. A good writer. He wrote a big novel about the Boston police strike. Um, the given day, right? And I thought it was too long, but it was it, you know the characters are good, the story is good, and he does write good stories. And he's now moved to California, I believe. But you know, is a very is serious about his writing. I think anyone who writes professionally has to be serious about their writing. And Lahane is good. Another good local writer is William Martin, who's written also historical thrillers with a lot of historical research in them. Um, yeah, so both are doing this, and I give credit to anyone who is making a living as a writer of fiction now. It's, uh, did the old, did the writers of old make a lot of money at the time compared no. to others? So is it possible Lahane is the most financially successful writer he could from be. Boston he, ever? He, he, he could very well be. I mean, that would be something we would have to look into. Um have there been other? There have been other, you know, successful writers. I think the real success, though, is if you're writing for um, movies or television. So, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck may be the most successful writers. Remember, they started with a screenplay for Goodwill Hunting, right? And you know, turned that into careers for, you know, both of them. I think Matt Damon's probably more serious, more the more serious actor. Um, but that's been. Um, an interesting trajectory. And then again, we have Robert Parker, who wrote, you know, the Spencer novels. Yeah, can you talk a, at length about Robert Parker? I can't talk at length about Good, Robert Parker. Because uh, Sp Spencer novels, the yeah. Spencer TV show. TV show. Yeah. I was an extra. I, really? In one of those. That down, well, then we should talk at length about One of those yeah. hotels. Well, the extra part yeah. won't last long because I, I I was left on the cutting room floor. Oh, my goodness. I, wow. I, I watched it and I didn't see it. But it was kind of fun to be yeah, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It does add something. And you know, think about it, it hasn't been that long. You know, I think it was um, the Thomas Crown Affair was really the first movie made in Boston. That was the time when they didn't make movies here. In Boston at that time, this is the late 60s, it's kind of a seedy place and still kind of a political, a corrupt place. And they're really trying to get this dark atmosphere of Boston. Today, it's really hard to do a movie like that here because the city is really thriving. And right. So you don't have that Where do you find kind of seediness. Seedy areas yeah, to that's shoot right. in. Yeah, The Friends of Eddie Coyle is one of my favorite movies. Also one of my favorite books. George Higgins wrote The Friends of Eddie Coyle. And here, you know, Eddie Coyle doesn't really have any friends. And that's one of the stories here. And again, it's this seedy kind of guy, this low life in Boston. So back to Thomas Crown. Who, yeah. Is that a Lahane book? No. No, no, no. That was uh, George. No, Thomas Crown. It's so old. It was so old. Too old. Yeah. No, I'm blanking on it. That's okay. Wrote it. Yeah. The, a little bit of n knowledge on that. I used to frequent the Marliav restaurant. Our oh, yeah. family yeah. used to go there yeah. for holidays. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of burned out on it now, but mm -hmm. it's a really cool old school oh, yeah, place. That is. And on the top, the top floor yeah. is now enclosed, but used to be open. At least part of it used to be yeah. open. And there was a scene. In the movie that is shot in that open oh, really? corner, 
And what's the street? It's Providence, Providence Street and, and Bromfield. Bromfield. Yeah. So it, it looks out at yeah. corner to Bromfield. Right. Yeah. From inside, okay. which is pretty cool. That is. That's a that's a great view. That is really this old Boston. You know, the story is that when they were doing the plans for the big new developments, um, now I'm blanking on the name of the head of the um, Boston Redevelopment Authority at the time, who said there's no Bromfield Street here, which is something he thought you needed, a street where you had all these quirky things. There's a baseball card shop on the first floor of the Marliov. Uh, it's like a museum. And there's another baseball card shop up the street. Now, there are a couple of places that do nails. There's a pen store where I get my yep, pens there is a pen store. down the street. Oh, yeah. did I give you your pen back? You did give me my pen okay, back. Good. Arthur Miller also bought pens at that store. Okay. Yeah, so there's another Boston literary connection. Yeah. yeah one of my favorite, though, Boston literary stories is, um, and just talking about Boston as a seedy place, is uh, The Last Hurrah. And Edwin O'Connor, who only wrote three novels in his life. He died young, um, but among the best novels ever written about Boston. The Edge of Sadness is about a Catholic priest in Boston in this period, 1940s, 1950s. And then The Last Hurrah. He wrote the, the um, I think it was Beacon Press, did this as a contest to write a novel about Boston. And so O'Connor, who's then living in a rented room on Beacon Hill, writes this novel about Boston politics. And it's Frank Skeffington is the character, and he is this old politician really modeled, not very uh, loosely, on James Michael Curley. And Skeffington is telling this story to his nephew, and his nephew is uh, becoming a journalist, and his ne- he thinks his nephew might like to see how one of these political campaigns operates. This will be Skeffington's last campaign. And it's a wonderful book. It's really based on the 1936 race between Curley and Maurice Tobin, and Tobin being the voice of the new generation. And but it really and Skeffington was this old figure who is kind of an embarrassment to the city. But you really get how important this guy was, and how important he was to the people he represented. And you have the various characters who were opposed to Skeffington, the head of the bank, and the cardinal, and the publisher of the newspaper. And they all hate this guy for various reasons. And there's um, scenes that almost seem like uh, it, it's so well written. And it really captures you with the story of Skeffington, this old buccaneer. You come to have great sympathy for him and empathy for him and realize that what a, and what a sad life he's led because the reason his nephew is observing him is his children don't want to have anything to do with him. And, but the people who once believed in him are so devoted to him. And there's one episode in the book in which Skeffington is trying to get a loan for the city from the bank, but the banker is going to shut up. He's tired of Skeffington, this guy, this clown who's running the city into the ground, and so he's not going to loan another dime to the city. And so Skeffington calls in, uh, makes an appointment with the banker's son, who's a guy probably about 40, and he's working for his father at the bank. And he's kind of one of these ineffectual New England boobs. I think um, you know, the only reason he has a job at the bank is because his father runs the bank, but he can spend his summer sailing. And so Skeffington calls him in, 
says, you know, it's really time for the younger generation to step forward. And I think it would be an important thing for you, possibly, to take a bigger role in civic affairs. And he sizes the guy up as being really dim-witted. And he says, for example... um, Giving me a loan. Well, no, he doesn't say give me a loan. He says... You know, maybe you could be. So I'm, I'm looking for a new fire commissioner. Oh. He says, "Do you have any idea what the fire commissioner does?" And he says, "Well, I imagine he has something to do with putting out fires." And he says, "Well, exactly, precisely, <laughs> precisely." And and the guy tells him, "He's Skeffington says, oh, you're very tanned. You must play a lot of tennis.'" He says, "No, pr- primarily sailing." The guy has a lisp too, which Skeffington tries to calculate if the guy really can be putting on this lisp or if it actually is. He is, and he says, yes, he, slants, uh, he spends the summer sailing on a perfectly splendid old sloop. And then Skeffington gives a brief discourse on the importance of the sloop and sailing vessels and the history of the city and so on, and then goes on to the fire commissioner and says, well, no, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have mentioned it because you would be very much in the public eye. You'd have to wear a white fire uniform, and you'd be driven to all of the fires in a limousine, and you know, we wouldn't have to impose on you. And he said, well, I'm very interested, Mr. Mayor. And he says, no, no, no. Uh, talk it over with your wife, and why don't you send me a letter? Okay, so the guy leaves, and then a day or two later, Skeffington gets this letter from him saying, Mr. Mayor, I would love to be fire commissioner. So then Skeffington has another meeting with the banker, and he says, um, you know, the banker says, no, absolutely not. And Skeffington says, well, okay, I understand. He says, but maybe you can help me with this. And he shows him a letter. Here's a letter from the guy's son saying, I would like to be fire commissioner. And the banker knows that Skeffington has him because he can really embarrass his son. I mean, Skeffington, I have no idea why suddenly he proposing that he be fire commissioner. And that's how things really work. That's how At things, least how they did then. Yeah. So here's one of my favorite stories about Boston and its literature. In the 1980s, the city was in the midst of a budget crisis, as it often is. And Mayor White appeals to the state for money, for some way out of this. And he goes to the president of the state Senate, Senator William Bolger, Okay. And he's telling Bolger, it would really be great if you could do this. It would help with you, your reputation and all. And Bolger says, you're talking to me the way Skeffington talked to the banker's son. There you go. After all of this is resolved, Bolger gets a package from Mayor White, and it's a fire commissioner's helmet. Oh, that's a perfect, that's a perfect way to wrap this up. Thanks so much, Bob Allison, as always. My pleasure. It's a, it's my, no, my pleasure. It's WBZ. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.